All righty. Well, welcome, everyone, and this fourth Sunday of Advent. I cannot believe it that we have lit all the candles. Every time, every time we come to this, this part of the year, I always feel like, okay, we're lighting the first candle, and here we go, and it seems like it's going to be a long month, and then all of a sudden, all four of those puppies are lit, and it's the week of, of Christmas, and we've got this experience event tonight, and so many uh, things are happening this week, and college students are coming back, so good to see you, and, and, and folks, yep, there you are, I see you there too. I was, I was scanning, I'm like, I knew there was more, <laughs> so they're all back home, and, and, uh, and so yes, and that's, that's all good stuff. Um, but here we are, fourth Sunday, it is the candle of love. So my question uh, for you all, it's pretty basic, just to get your hands in the air. How many of you have loved another person? Raise your hand if you've loved another person. Wouldn't that be hard? Someone who's not right. Jared, I don't see your hand up there. I don't know. Chelsea, just be kidding. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I'm just picking on it. No, no, no. I thought about that too. I'm like, what if someone doesn't raise their hand? We're going to have to like rush over there and pray for them. Uh, I'm gonna raise your hand if you have been the recipient of love, that you have been loved. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. You know, love's great. It's uh, many a splendid thing, as the song says. But uh, when we have, uh, when we uh, have weddings and bring two people together, and, and oftentimes we have that, that text from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that goes through all the love is and, and that, and, and really and truly that's not necessarily about married folks, it's about how we love each other within the church, but it works for a wedding, and you see that these two people, and they're just gazing in each other's eyes, and it's just wonderful, and thanks be to God, I've not had a situation where they're looking at each other in total fear and anger, uh, because that just would be awkward for everyone involved, but... It's just a, a good thing, love. But for today, I would say this and see if you agree. Love is messy. Anyone else? Love is a messy business. Think of all the twists and the turns and the ups and the downs and the trials that love goes through. And you, don't even, you don't even have to be married necessarily to understand that. That could be a friendship. That could be a, uh, um, a sibling, a parent. Uh, that could be a coworker that you're just trying to, in the name of Jesus, love that person through. It is a, it is a messy, messy business. My wife and I, I love the transition between that and then talk about me and Carrie. But <laughs> so Carrie and I... Um, we, uh, in terms of love just being uh, this, this messiness of things, Carrie and I started dating when I was 25 and she was 23. And so she was just out of the University of Florida. I was just into teaching. Uh, and so we were the youngest people in choir. And you may have heard the story before, so I'll go through it quickly, hopefully. Youngest people in choir, and the only reason why we even went out to have coffee together is because Carrie came over to talk to me and as the other young person. Now, unbeknownst to her, my mother and some other lady that were in the choir worked together to lie to me and say that Carrie was actually interested when in fact she was not. She was not interested whatsoever other than just being uh, a friend. And so when she, Carrie, came over to say, let's go get coffee, and I was thinking, okay, great, yeah, she is something. And so after that coffee date, I very boldly asked her out via email because <laughs> I was not going to call up the Reverend Kevin Pound's home and 
have to talk to that man. I thought, no. I'd just email her. And, and we went out on a date and, 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 that, and, and started dating. And it was great. And we dated for about three months. And then because I was, you know, out of college and teaching, I thought, naturally, you know, this is what you do next at three months. I professed my undying love to her after three months of dating. To which she looked at me and said, oh, no. <laughs> so it was not quite the response that I wanted. She looked at me and she said, no, 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 that's no, no. And I was like, okay, I mean, just one no's fine. And, um, and, and shortly thereafter, she saw fit to say, why don't we just calm in here and just put the brakes on? And, and we uh, ended that, that dating relationship and I was, I was, you know, sad about that. But we remained friend and friendly. And um, two years later... Uh, started talking again, and, and, and we went and started dating again. Now, the problem with that, and all this idea of love is messy, is that Carrie, at the time that we started dating the second time, had received a call to go overseas for missions. She was going to go clear across, literally, the other side of the planet. And so we thought very, uh, obviously, this is what you do. Let's start a relationship the month before that that happened. <laughs> and so the month before, we started dating and, and thought, listen, there's email and there's, there's Skype. If you remember Skype, those are the days of, of Skype. We're like, we surely can have this long-distance relationship. And, and how long are you going again? Two years? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, we can do this. And so she leaves, and we try to, to, to have this relationship. Now, the problem is, is that where she was going to be a missionary, you weren't allowed to be a missionary. And the government watched everything that you said via email phone, whatever. And so that meant that we had to speak in code. Now, at that time, I was a youth minister. I started being a, a youth minister at a church, and it was very exciting. I was doing things in ministry that were just blowing my mind that God was doing through, not me, but God, and God was doing, and God was doing through her and missionary work over there, just tremendous things. He was doing a work in us both, and yet we couldn't talk about it. There was no way that we could share that with each other. And then Skype would freeze, and Emails would take long to get their packages. And, and so just before Valentine's Day, she calls me up and, again, being the wise one, she says, hey, I don't think this is working. Now, unbeknownst to her, I sent a gift package for Valentine's Day to her country of, of where she was at. It was filled with all the things that she loved, including liquid detergent because they didn't have that over there. Now, I made sure that that was sealed on tight and of course, when she got it, after, you know, about a month after she had broken up with me, the detergent had exploded over everything, and it was, it was just appropriate for what was going on. <laughs> and then she comes home after three years there. Her parents, mom says, I saw her mom at church, and she's, I asked her how she was doing, and she said, well, she's getting ready to apply to go to seminary in California. And I said, dear God, let this woman stay in one place just for a month. Give me a bone here. And, and the thing is, is that I tried dating another person and another woman, and she was kind, and, but she wasn't Carrie. And a good Christian friend of mine said, you, you, you can't lead this woman on. You cannot date this woman if you don't have these type of feelings with her. You need to call it off. And I said, I know, but I don't even know if Carrie is even interested. And he said, that doesn't really matter. You just, you, it's, if that's your heart, God may, may work something there. And so I did, not knowing what Carrie was going to do. And, and then lo and behold, long story longer, we, we started dating a third time. And, and now we've been married for almost eight years. But 
It was just a messy business. It was uncertain. And it required perseverance. It required waiting. It required hoping and, and having strength in what God was doing. He was doing a work in us both. We weren't ready at 25 and 23. We were ready seven years after, after he had done his initial work in us to perfect us to love him first and not love the other person first, which was probably more a work for me than it was for her. Love waits and it gets messy. Think of all the trials that love bursts through to grab a hold of another person and say these things. You have value. You're worth being treated like a human being, to be cared for, to be kind to, and most importantly, to be forgiven. See, that's the biblical definition of where love is coming from, and that's the type of love that God calls us to express to each other. But we complicate it because we can't necessarily define it. Love is always very complicated because it, biblical love, because it requires selflessness. It requires us to lay our lives down for somebody else. It requires to put ourselves second for the benefit of somebody else, just as Jesus loved us. And so when it doesn't make sense, when things don't make sense in this world, we as sinful people, we try to rewrite it. And I think that's why in our culture right now, people have a hard time defining love because they don't quite understand it. It doesn't make sense in the way that the author of love put it together. And so we flip it and make it more about us, how I feel and how I'm doing versus how I express that to somebody else. Loving as Jesus loved as we are commanded, is messy. It gets down in the grime and the dirt and the muck with other people and looks them in the eye and says, I got you, we can do this together, and I'll pull you through. You're my brother, you're my sister, you're my brother in Christ, my sister in Christ, you're my mom, you're my dad, my child, you're my friend, you're my fellow man in this world, and I love you because Christ loved me, and you're worth it. That's what we are called to do. And the strength that comes to be able to do that comes from the fact that Jesus loved us first. And that when we wait in that, when we abide in that, when we rest in that, that love rises up and perfects us from the inside out. And that's exactly what Jesus did in coming. He enters the mess as his God does in his coming. He enters the mess as his son, Jesus. And through the great act of unconditional selfless love, we find his perfection. Waiting on Jesus, we find the perfection of his love. So we're going to camp in Bible land here to try to explain this out a little bit. This is the Sunday of love. We're in a sermon series about waiting. The idea of waiting is not necessarily, like I said before, where you're just kind of like, okay, any day. But it's actually a a resting in, a sitting in, a remaining with, with hopeful anticipation. It's different than keeping. I've been kind of throwing the word to keep with God in there, but that's different as you'll see here today. See, keeping is more or less walking in God's statutes, keeping his commandments. And the way that we walk and we keep his commandments comes from the strength we receive in resting and abiding in him. That's how those two work together. And through our series, we've talked about how this shows up in our hope, our hope that is perfect assurance. It has shown up in our peace, that, that, that um, restoration of the broken relationship, having peace with God, our joy in recognizing grace, and now perfecting us, making us into 
the very creation that he intended us to be through his experience of love. Now, you got to be careful with the fourth Sunday of Advent, and I'm going to try my very best not to be repetitive. I feel like the fourth Sunday of Advent should be Christmas Eve because love kind of wraps all this up in a nice little bow. In fact, I've rewritten this, this sermon at least twice because after a while, I was like, nope, this is Christmas Eve. <laughs> so Christmas Eve might be written already, but anyways, here we are. Let's hyper-focus in on what this means to experience his love and how that affects our waiting and how that perfects our, our as our going lives. So open up to page 1212, the gospel of, well, it's not the gospel, the letter of 1 John. It's written by the gospel writer John. We're going to look at chapter 3, verse 23 through 24. And this, the way it's written here in scriptures, this kind of begins a section of thought here this in 23 to 24 that John is going to, is trying to encourage his believer, encourage his readers <coughs> to, one, walk in the statutes, the commandments of God, which is to love him first and then love others the way that you have been loved by Christ. So he sets it up and then our primary focus today on love is what does that love look like? So let's look here. First John 3, 23 through 24. This is what he writes. And this is his commandment, that we first believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That's love God. That's the vertical axis. And love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps, walks in, walks out, lives out those commandments, look at this, abides in God, waits on God, remains in God, sets up a residence in God. Whoever keeps and walks and has that be their life's mission, they walk these commandments out of loving and obeying the Father and loving each other as we have been loved by Christ, they abide in God and God abides in him. There's this mutual waiting that's happening. Not only do we wait and rest in and abide in God, but there's also the promise that he does the same in us. What in the world is Jesus waiting on inside of us? find out as we continue on. And so he goes on in chapter 4 to talk about what it looks like to love the Lord and test the spirits. And then we get to this here section, chapter 7, of what it is that Jesus is waiting on. This outpouring of love that we have for each other because of what's happening inside of us. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 8 I'm going to work through this all the way through and kind of teach as we go along. He says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So right out the gate, John is calling us back to a story in his gospel of Nicodemus. Raise your hand if you remember Nicodemus. So Nicodemus is this Pharisee, right? And Jesus is doing all of these signs and wonders and causing all sorts of a ruckus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus by morning or by night, by night, because he does not want to be found out. And he says to Jesus, you, ought to, you, you, you got to be someone special. You have to be from God. No one can do the things that you're doing if they're not from God. So who are you? And Jesus, obviously in Jesus' fashion, doesn't necessarily kind of reveal it right away. 
he looks at Nicodemus, and, and they have this back-and-forth exchange. And in some ways, he looks at Nicodemus like, you're a teacher. How do you not know this? But basically says, if you want to know who I am, and you want to know my true identity, you have to be born again from above. In order for you to be born again from above, then you will absolutely understand and know what's going on here. And then John 3.16, for God to love the world, that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whosoever believe in him shall not die, but have eternal life. And we go through that whole passage there. Well, here in this letter now, John is writing, he says, listen, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves naturally in the way that God has ordained us to love has been born from God. He has been born again. He's been from above. He knows. John is writing this after Jesus has been born and after the resurrection. So the cat's been out of the bag. This is for the in-between time. So if you want to demonstrate that you are with the Lord, and that God abides in you, and you abide in him, it's going to show up in your love, because God is love, and if you do that, you have been born from him. Whoever doesn't do that has not been born from him, is the next line. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. It's a huge challenge for all of us. Love is a messy thing. We are more inclined, our instinct is more to look at the messes of other people's lives and say to them, please keep that mess in your yard. Thank you. Do not have that come across onto my path. You do your crazy and I'll do mine. Versus actually reaching out to that person and getting messy with them in order to help them out with whatever it is that they're going through. That's our natural instinct is to be more self-preserving than self-giving. But anyone who does not love here does not know God. So if that is not our instinct, then that the question is, do we really know the Lord? And so then it goes on here, verses 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So if you are now confused, do I know God? He is saying here that in order, not only is it that you've been born from above to know him, but God has made known what this love is in sending his son Jesus to the world. That, that word manifest there really means to have it be graspable, to have it be tangible. In order for God to show the world what true love is, he pulled back the veil and came in the flesh as Jesus and made manifest to the world that expression of love through this little baby boy, Jesus. It's something you can hold on to. You can, you can grab onto it. And you realize that in order for the Lord to do this, to come into our mess, it, and we know the rest of the story, it's going to eventually lead to the cross. Why would he do such a thing? Why would an almighty, all-powerful God stoop down into the mess and get dirty in order to save us? There's a movie called The Case for Christ, which I've referenced before. Our women saw it a couple weeks ago. 
There's a great scene of the main character, Lee Strobel, who's a real person, journalist, who set out to, to gather all the facts up about whether or not Jesus and the crucifixion is real. And at the end of the movie, a friend of his in his, in his office, another journalist, says, Lee, you need to put up or shut up. You need to take and stack all this evidence up and answer the question, is Jesus real or is he not? And look at what happens now as, as Lee wrestles with this and it becomes revealed to him why Christ came. Watch. The only way to truth is through facts. The entire Christian faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. If it didn't happen, it's a house of cards. I just have to show that Jesus died and was seen after. How can we be sure of the reliability of those manuscripts? Archaeologists have recovered 5,843 Greek New Testament manuscripts. Nothing else in history even comes close. Do you trust the Journal of the American Medical Association? Yes, Jesus Christ died on that cross. You not tell me what I hope to hear today. It is true. The first recorded account tells us that he was buried in a tomb. The empty tomb is based on evidence. Isn't evidence your trade? Faith is the evidence of things we can't actually see. Any careful historian will see that the core account is consistent, even if a, a few of the secondary details are told from different perspectives. 500 separate people saw Jesus at the same time. That would be an even bigger miracle than the resurrection itself. The disciples reported what happened. People with zero motivation to lie. When is enough absence and not I felt something that is maybe more real than anything I've ever felt in my life. This is not a condition anymore. Still takes a leap of faith. But why would he do it? It's really very simple. Love. And I, I remember watching that and, and, and actually being moved emotionally, tears in my eyes as I watched that scene. And it's just an actor. I don't know if this actor is a follower of Christ or not. I don't know if he just interpreted, but he interpreted rightly. The type of, the, the, watch as he, as he looks and stands in front of all the evidence that's been stood up, that has been stacked up of who Jesus is, of everything that was there, all the facts. And yet none of these facts make any sense until he confronts the reason why. And as he confronts the reason why, that why would he, Jesus do such a thing? It's because of love. You see him take a step back and gasp as he grasps the truth. The only reason why God would do any of this, this messy business of coming as flesh, of moving into the neighborhood, of tabernacling with us, is that one day he was going to die 
and send his Holy Spirit so that his Holy Spirit may abide and rest in us and perfect in us this love because he loves us and loved us first. We don't love him first. He loves us first. And I struggled with it because if you're like me, I wrestle with God with this because I know I am not worthy. I know the mess that I am. And I would rather just I take control of it and I don't need your help. Because if you turn your focus on me, Jesus, you're going to know that I should be counted out. And I don't know if that's you or not. I know that's how I wrestle with the Lord. And it's the complete antithesis of who Jesus is and what he came to do. If I were to say that to Jesus, he would look at me and say, Mike, Mike, he'd say his name twice. You know, if he says your name twice, you're in, in, in for it. And say, that's, that's not who I am and that's not how I feel about you. He'd lift my eyes up and say, I am with you and you are mine and I'll get you through this because you're worth it. Verse 10 goes on in this powerful statement here. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us first, as I just said, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And this sets apart God, the God, from any other gods. In that time period, that Hellenistic, uh, that Greek influence, it would not be unheard of that a, a human woman was con uh, con had conceived a, an, an heir to a god. That a god came down, did some stuff with this woman, and now she is carrying a child. That's not unheard of. So you get the legends of Hercules and things like that, the demigods. It's not unheard of to them. In fact, I read an article from a New Testament, New Testament professor who claims, and I don't know if I agree wholly, but it was interesting, <coughs> who claims that, that it would not be unheard of, of of Mary's time, those who chose to believe that she was telling the truth. It would not have been a big leap for them to, to believe that she was carrying God's child, because it's something that's within the realm of possibilities. But it's such a gross misinterpretation of what happened. See, there's two different kinds of love that, that are being brought to the forefront here, two Greek words. One is eros love versus agape love. And eros love is that lust, that, that sexual drive kind of love that makes the person the object, subject to that. And so when God's little g would lay with, with humans, they became the object of the God's lust. But when the angel came to Mary to announce that she was going to carry God's son, what did the angel say? Blessings, Mary, oh, favored one. And that's agape love. Through eros love, Mary would be the object of his, of his desire, but that isn't the case. Mary is the recipient of, of his favor and grace, which is agape love. Agape love is unmerited, unconditional favor and grace and love that we receive from the Lord. And it's the type of love that we're supposed to express to other people. And it's messy. Because as John goes on, not only did God send his son and make him known to everybody, but then he sends his son to be this big fancy word, 
a propitiation for our sins, which means the stand-in, the scapegoat, the person who takes on the deserved punishment that we were supposed to have. It's a messy, messy business, this love. And that also flies into the face of the understanding of other gods. Other gods, when they punish, it's a sign of their power. And so they try to stave off that punishment and they try to satisfy the gods. But the God, our God, willingly gives up his power. Do you see the flip? He willingly gives up his power so that we can be saved through him and then become the testifiers, the witnesses of his true and awesome, unmatchable power that is mighty to save. And so we have experienced this love when we profess a faith and belief in Jesus Christ. And this love perfects us from the inside out because it's not a once and done deal. It's not a check. You remember, you remember in elementary school class when you wrote a love letter to somebody? I don't know if you all did this. Teens, maybe you did or not. And you said, will you go out with me or do you love me? And you gave a little box, yes, no, and then the one in the middle, maybe, right? I never got maybes. I only got no's. But no, you never, you know, you know. And, and, and you would check yes and be like, oh, we're going out. And you didn't do anything. But you know, if everybody, you, you were going out with this person because of this little letter. That's not what's happening here. Our profession of faith, our, our saying and confessing that Jesus is Lord, it is a setting us up for a continual relationship, a continual abiding. Listen to this. Verses 11 through 12, and I'll wrap it up. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There there should not be an excuse then. That should be our natural instinct, our born-again instinct. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. For God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And if you go on to verse 15... Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And those verbs, confess and God abides, are in the active voice. They're in the continual action. And the real kicker here is that our confession is not by our power. Our confession is linked to the fact that God continually abides in us. For as often as he continually abides and the Holy Spirit continually convicts and teaches us of the love that we have received, it just emboldens and empowers our confession evermore so that we may keep his commandments and that we may naturally love other folks in the way that we have been loved. Isn't that an amazing turn of events? We don't, we don't, worship a little capital, little underscore G God. We worship the God who now sets up permanent residence in our heart. He's put pictures on the wall. He's made himself at home. He helps himself to the refrigerator. He is residence in our heart. Our posture is to abide in him. His action is to continually strengthen us and perfect us. And our response is to naturally love others as we have loved him first, as he has loved us first. What a messy business this love is because we are 
just right messes. And we get it wrong more than we get it right. But even so, God loved the world. He loved even me. He loved even you. He loved even that guy over there. He loved even Jenny Her. <laughs> you want to see the true meaning of Christmas to make this back to Christmas, look no further than to the grace that you've received and the love that you have received, that unmerited, unconditional love for even you. Let it warm and convict your hearts. Let it spill out and let us do nothing but naturally love from our born-again status to get down in the dirt and the muck and the mess with others, to lift their eyes to the hills and say, your strength comes from the Lord. I love you and you're worth it because Jesus said I was worth it. And if I'm worth it, I know you are too. For God so loved even you. Let us pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, uh, in some ways we have rushed to the cradle, I know, with this, but oh Lord, as we now stand in the in-between time of the cross and the second coming, allow these things of hope and peace, joy, and most importantly, love, continue to perfect us from the inside out to be more and more like you so that our first instinct is to love rather than condemn, is to help rather than to push down is to share rather than to remain silent. Lord, in this time of Christmas this week, put on our hearts to invite someone to hear the gospel on Christmas Eve, to hear the truth as to why you came. Allow us to use this time to, to our, our benefit, to your benefit. Embolden our witness as we rest and abide in you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.